I was originally going to do that, but then I, was, I, I didn't realize that there were two different people. <laughs> Don't put that in the episode either. evening's episode we stumble upon a musician that once again influences so widely beyond what i think he was recognized for when i started listening to the music to produce the episode tonight it really just the threads that came out of it showed me how many different musicians were not just directly influenced from his style and his musical portrayal but genres themselves may be defined out of maybe vocal rhythms or Maybe some might say the spirit of the music itself. Thank you all for tuning in tonight. I'm Pat. I'm Ian. Welcome to Dude Check Out This Song. And tonight we are covering Howlin' Wolf. Oh my god, it's going to be good. Yeah, and Howlin' Wolf was born June 20th, 1910 in West Point, Mississippi. And contrary to probably nobody's belief, his name was actually Chester Arthur Burnett. Chester Arthur Burnett. Yep. No wonder he went with Howlin' Wolf. <laughs> he grew up one of six children on the Young and Myers Cotton Plantation, where both his parents worked. His grandfather would tell him and his siblings stories of wolves in the area, and once something frightened him, and he ran Howlin' upstairs, which prompted his family to dub him the Howlin' Wolf. Oh, that's fucking awesome. So, so this name comes from like his family called him Howlin' Wolf yeah, way back Yeah, from in the childhood. Day. That's fucking that is a cool ass nickname. <laughs> and that's a good origin for it. And so when he was still a child, his mother and his father split up and his mother sent him away to live with his uncle. It was pretty hard on him. Whipping him with a bull whip and making him eat separately from the rest of his family. Wait, what? That's what his uncle did? Yeah. What the fuck? A bullwhip? A bullwhip. That's some, like, stepchild shit. What the fuck? <laughs> Sorry to all the stepkids out there. Jesus, like, that's fucked up. What the <laughs> hell? Well, and not shockingly, at the age of 13, he ran away and moved <laughs> to Mississippi. <laughs> Gasp. He eventually found his father, and he'd end up working with his father on the plantation in Ruleville, Mississippi. And in January 1928, Burnett's father bought him a guitar, and he began playing regularly. But he kind of had some help learning how to play guitar. Our old friend Charlie Patton actually helped teach him oh guitar. My. Wait, really? Charlie yeah. Patton? Hell yeah. yeah. Charlie Patton showed him a few chords, but the biggest thing, taught him how to put on a show. Yep. And I'm not surprised that's one of the things that Charlie Patton taught him the most either. And once again, you know... Not a whole lot about his childhood. And he began performing in the early 1930s, basically as an imitator of Charlie Patton's style. But by the end of the decade, he would end up adopting the electric guitar, and he'd even have a neck rack for a harmonica. And the reason for this was in 1933, him and his dad moved to Parkin, Arkansas, where harmonica master Sonny Boy Williamson dated Wolf's half-sister, and taught him how to play harmonica. That's awesome. And didn't we already talk about Park in Arkansas one time before and I made the joke? I feel like I made that joke already. <laughs> I was going to make the joke, but I was like, God, it's like I think we were boo. talking about Sonny Boy Williamson yeah, at the that, time, too. That might be uh, directly what the, was happening. And it sounds like he dated a lot of people, too. Yeah, he, he got around. He's a Howlin' Wolf, after all. And, of course, Howlin' Wolf preferred the life of a blues musician rather than to being a sharecropper. Yeah, well, I mean, wouldn't you, wouldn't everybody? I definitely would. Yeah, I mean, it's just an abjectly better job. And a funner life. And so Howlin' Wolf started wandering the region of Mississippi and Arkansas, you know, where all the awesome Delta Blues musicians were. Oh, yeah, that's a good place to learn. And he'd play anywhere just to make some money. And if you guys didn't know this, he was a giant man. 
He stood over six feet three inches and weighed somewhere around two hundred and seventy five pounds. Yeah, and he, he's a giant dude. Yeah, he's a huge dude. And he became well known in the area as a blues performer, not just for his showmanship that Charlie Patton showed him, but also for his large size and loud howling voice. Yeah, so he really adopted that name, Helen Wolf. Yeah, we watched that uh, a couple of live episodes or live, live videos. Yeah, and uh, it's funny because it's like zoomed in on him, and you're like, "Oh, that's a normal sized dude." And it starts zooming out, and it's like, "Oh, that's a tiny band he's got there." And then it starts to zoom out more. You're like, "Oh no, that's just a big guy." That's just a big guy. Yep, he was holding like a like a twenty or a hundred dollar bill in his hand during one of the uh, live shows that we watched. It was pretty entertaining. And so, in his travels, along with playing with Sonny Boy Williamson, Helen Wolf would also perform with Robert Johnson, Sunhouse, Johnny Shimes, Willie Brown, and Robert Lockwood Jr., who, if you remember from our Robert Johnson episode, was kind of adopted by Robert Johnson. Yeah, didn't, what, his mom, uh, or Robert Johnson lived with his mom for a bunch of years or yeah, something Yeah, they like dated that. on yeah. and off for like 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> hey, that's a good stepdad. We've been t- talking a lot about stepchildren and stepdads this episode, but uh, yeah, if you got a stepdad, let's p- let's pick Robert Johnson. <laughs> I mean, that's I mean, up there I don't know. Like, he didn't live long. Yeah, but then he. Okay, I'm not going to say that out loud. <laughs> Moving on. Oh man, now I want to hear it. <laughs> and with all the playing he was doing, he would still continue to work on the farm with his father whenever he possibly could. Kind of bringing the whole link between the land and the blues, you know. Yeah. That was kind of always his thing. Hell yeah. So sometime in Howlin' Wolf's life, he spent two and a half years in the U.S. Army. Couldn't figure out whether he was actually drafted or enlisted. I read multiple things that said both of them. So we're just going to go with the fact that he was in the Army. In the canine unit. Boom. (laughs) But you'll like this one, Pat. What? For most of his time in the Army... He was stationed in Seattle, Washington. Oh, yeah. But for part of that time, he was also signed to the 9th Cavalry Regiment, famed for being one of the units dubbed Buffalo Soldier. Hell yeah. Which, if you guys don't know what a Buffalo Soldier is, it was a nickname given to members of the African-American Cavalry Regiments of the U.S. Army who served in the Western United States from 1867 to 1896 mainly fighting Indians on the frontier. So, being that he was in an all-black regiment, probably had some racism behind it. Yeah. As the term was shortly dropped after that. Yeah, that's uh... (laughs) a... It's hard not to run into some sort of racism at this point, is it? No, not at all. And it's it's painful every time. Like, I just don't even have a retort. If you want want to know my stance on racism, watch any of the other episodes. (laughs) And so, when Helen Wolf got out of the Army, he returned home and started farming again. And so, he went to Penton, Mississippi and worked on a farm for two years, farming by the day and playing music by night. In Penton, he met Katie Mae Johnson. <gasps> Number one? Number one. They yeah. were married May 3rd, 1947. Oh, yeah. That's pretty late, too. I mean, considering he was born in, what, 15? 1910. Oh, yeah. Well, fuck. That's actually pretty late in his life for number one. He seems to do a lot of things pretty late in his life. We'll get to that, though. Spent a lot of it wolfing around. (laughs) In 1948, Howlin' Wolf and his wife would end up moving to West Memphis. He took a job in a factory there, but his main draw to the place was the Blues Clubs. Oh, was the area, like, full of Blues Clubs or whatever? Yeah. I mean, West Memphis at the time was, like, one of the happening places, you know, with just, like, bars and clubs everywhere. Hell yeah. And the comment about you saying Howlin' Wolf was kind of late getting started, it's pretty true. He spent most of his adult life basically up till the age of 38 farming, other than, you know, his stint at a factory. Other than that, he was just playing blues locally. Yeah, and, just, uh, and just a side gig, you know, like we've always done. Huh, that's, that's actually pretty cool. And it wasn't until his father's death in 1949 when he decided to devote himself entirely to the blues when he was almost 40. Wow, that is late as fuck, but that's awesome. So, this is just a little interesting fact that I kind of threw in here. I think you'll dig this one. So, Howlin' Wolf's childhood idol singer. Yeah. Can you guess who it is? I bet you can't. Uh, No, not at all. 
Jimmy Rogers. <laughs> <laughs> and as you know from our episode about Jimmy Rogers, was noted for his blues yodel. And Wolf actually tried to emulate this yodel, but found that his efforts sounded more like a growl or a howl. Yep. And to quote Helen Wolf, he said, I couldn't do no yodeling, so I turned to Helen and has done me just fine. <laughs> well, I mean, if you listen to any of his songs, he literally howls and does like weird whooping and wooing and, and hoo. <laughs> that was pretty good. Yeah. I well, think you're getting better at that. Yeah. I mean, th- I have to practice, otherwise you yell at me for singing. <laughs> I just cry and practice when you're not here. Don't worry, I've kept all of your singing into each episode, too. <laughs> and since he decided to devote himself only to blues, you know, obviously he's got to get paying gigs. Well, the first gigs that he played, he played by himself. Hell yeah. Often earning only $50, working from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. that's fucked yeah and he decided it would be better to have some other musicians help take the load off of him yeah you think and so his first band featured william Steele on drums willie johnson and mt murphy on guitar junior parker on harmonica and some guy named destruction on piano Destruction, yeah. We got destruction on the piano. <laughs> Put your hands together for destruction. Yeah. Are you are you guys ready to blues? <laughs> Philadelphia, I can't hear you. Are you ready to blues? <laughs> and Wolf would alternate between harmonica and guitar. And one thing I didn't tell you about his time in the Army... That's when he picked up electric guitar. Oh, yes. But his main focus was his singing. Yeah, he's a howling wolf. He's not a strumming wolf. Come on. Or picking wolf. I don't know. You decide well, I which mean, one's wrong. If he picked up a wolf when he was a kid and they called him picking wolf, maybe he would have been an amazing <laughs> guitar player. Or he would have been an animal handler or a druid. I don't know. He could, he could have multi-classed, I suppose. <laughs> I'm a level 15 blues player and a level 10 druid. (laughs) They call me Howlin' Wolf. (laughs) Blues player, Ian, that was your best, that was your best adjective. (laughs) I guess that's not even an adjective at all. Whatever. It worked. You laugh. Fuck you. Uh, We are way off the track there. Anyways, let's rewind back to the real world here. And so back to his band, they started playing around the area, and you're going to love this, dude. You know what they call their band? Oh, what is it, please? House Rockers. (laughs) House Rockers. Hell yeah. Yeah. What year? Just after 1949. Oh, yes. When 50s is right around the corner. Yep. That juicy, juicy rock and roll era just right on the horizon. And it was because of this band that this is how we got discovered. And to quote Howlin' Wolf one more time. A what? Well, not one more time. I got a few more quotes from him. But to quote him another time, I, sh- I guess, that's where I got my break. Back in the country, the people weren't able to pay you too much. Sometimes you'd work all night for a fish sandwich and glad to get it, too. <laughs> a fish sandwich? A fish sandwich. That sounds, I mean, good, I guess, but working all night for one sandwich? I'm sure there's a few traveling musicians out there who go, yep, I remember those nights. <laughs> I worked for a sandwich. I mean, let's not let's let's not like lie too much. I have literally worked for beer multiple times, though. Oh, that's the first like eight years I played guitar. That's all I worked for was beer. Yeah, if I'm being <laughs> honest, uh, early musicians play for beer in the in the earliest of days because the money you're gonna get is so negligible that you can't even afford the beer that you're <laughs> already gonna have drank. Now so, the worst part is is when you get a booker who's like, "Hey, you want a shot?" and then he buys you a shot. But you didn't realize it just came out of the money he was going to pay you that night. Yeah, exactly. Or it's it's on your tab at the end of the night. That's my favorite. And another reason why Howlin' Wolf got discovered was he sold advertising spots for 30 minutes on a broadcasting station, KWEM, in West Memphis. The radio show was actually what eventually earned him a recording contract, as word of mouth could only get you so far sometimes, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so he actually grabbed the attention of someone we, we've mentioned before, Ike Turner. Hell yeah. Uh, wait, Ike Turner was... 
He played with Pat Hare. Oh, right. Yes, I remember. And, you know, really just produced an extraordinary amount of records. And in fact, he produced the first sides for Howlin' Wolf. And these songs were used to secure a contract with Sam Phillips of Sun Records, who we also mentioned last week. Hell yeah. And the first two hits that Wolf ever had were How Many More Years and Moaning at Midnight. And producer T-Bone Burnett would say about How Many More Years, and I quote, in some ways, How Many More Years by Wolf would be the first rock and roll song because that has the guitar lick that became the central lick in rock and roll. And that's the first time we heard that played on a distorted guitar. (laughs) Which lick? The lick for How Many More Years. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We actually listened to that one. We did listen to that. That's why I made you put it on because this is my first dude check out this song. Oh, woo. How many more years and moaning at midnight? Both these songs kick ass. Yeah, they are. They're they're masterpieces, and they're that first like blues accidentally turning into rock and roll uh, tracks that you know you could question which side of the line they actually land on. So many years later, but yeah, and we'll talk about this later in more depth. But the amount of rock and roll music musicians who actually covered his songs is staggering. Yeah, it's it is ridiculous. And so the master cuts for these two songs were sold from Sun to a Chicago-based recording company called Chess Records. And so in 1952, Howlin' Wolf moved to Chicago. Oh, le- yeah. Leaving his band behind in Memphis. Oh. <laughs> is that like leaving your wife behind? Am I supposed to be mad? I can't. <sighs> you know, it's funny. His wife refused to follow him. Ending their marriage. (laughs) (laughs) It is like leaving your wife behind. (laughs) So he ditched his wife, number one, and his band to move to Chicago. Yeah, you're on it. You're so on it tonight, Pat. Fuck, man. There he would end up opening a club on 13th and Ashland to showcase local blues talents. Of course, including himself in that. (laughs) Well, duh. And Wolf's... Animated stage presence was really a departure for bluesmen at the time. He writhed, he moaned, he climbed up draperies, pounded on posts, rolled on the floor. You know, it was gruff and blustery, you know, really to hammer home his songs. Did you say climbed up drapery? He did, yeah. See, I mean, okay. I ha- I feel like I had an animated stage presence, but Jesus, I didn't ever climb any drapery. I never thought of climbing stuff. I mean, I play accordion, though. It'd be pretty awkward to try and climb stuff with the accordion strapped to you. Trying to think of something cool you could do with an accordion, but I'm just not thinking of it. Yeah, there's there's not a whole lot of cool tricks you can do with an accordion. Check it out. I can squeeze it. If you get, like, I, I bet you if you got a special rig, you could do, like, the ZZ Top thing, but you'd have to, like, close it all the way and, like, <laughs> click it closed and, like... <laughs> It wouldn't be cool, is all I'm saying. <laughs> At the end of the day, it would be a whole lot of money to look and really uncool. And if you uncool. don't understand the reference, Pat's talking about spinning it on your belt buckle. Yeah, the, yeah, the ZZ Top guys spun their guitar on <laughs> the belt buckle. Actually, did you know they had to do that take a shitload of times? Because every time they spun their instruments around, it kept getting caught in their beards. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's some fucking dwarf problems right there, man. <laughs> or long beard problems. Yeah, exactly. And we've mentioned his vocals, but... Which are amazing. Which are amazing. But they were, like, so different from everybody else. They sounded menacing, and they really just had this primal force that kind of propelled from his throat. You know, like, it was gravelly. Yeah, there's a few very specific artists who took his style to, like, an extreme nether level, and it's, like, their own genre now. I'm not going to point any of them out, Tom Waits. (laughs) And apparently, I didn't know this, he copped some of his lyrics, too. Yeah, no, yeah, listen to a few of the songs tonight, there's there's literal, like, like phrases that are taken directly out of songs and put into Tom Waits' versions. But because of his voice and his showmanship, you know, he became pretty popular in the Chicago blues scene. And a legendary rivalry started happening between Howlin' Wolf and Muddy Waters. Now, yeah, a lot of this was actually blown out of proportion. But how they met, and to quote Howlin' Wolf, I got in touch with him because I didn't know nobody here. He carried me around the clubs and helped me get started. But, you know, they kind of shared, like, a grudging admiration for each other. While Waters was always considered to have the better bands, 
Wolf was always considered to, you know, leave a more unique mark. To be on, the better artist. Yeah, on, on, with every show he played, you know. Because I'm, I'm not going to lie. Like, if I was going to, like, compare Muddy Waters to Howlin' Wolf, I'm on the Howlin' Wolf side. I think I am, too, after doing this research and reintroducing myself to Howlin' Wolf. Forgot how awesome his songs are. And that's not to degrade uh, Muddy Waters' like quality at all. Of course, he's 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 still idyllic for the, uh, you know, the the era. But but I still would I'd pick Howlin' Wolf every time, <laughs> and I'm not ashamed to say that. And so there were actual signs of some of this rivalry. Like one show, Howlin' Wolf played before Muddy Waters, and they played the longest set they could to try and push Muddy Waters off the stage and not let him play. <laughs> you know, and Muddy Waters recorded an album called Electric Mud that came out in 1968. And so Wolf followed with his own psychedelic record. But Wolf never really liked that. In fact, he even called that album bird shit. <laughs> not dog shit, bird shit. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean... That's just, and that's probably the only time we're going to mention this at all because he really didn't like that album, so I didn't want to listen to it. But that's kind of jumping into the future. Let's get back to the narrative here. In 1954, he recorded the song Evil. This would be his biggest hit to this point. So good, too. And he would actually get on the Cashbox Magazine hot chart, which was kind of like back in the day, you know, how people kind of tracked it. Yeah. Especially for blues musicians. And this was the first... The, the, you said Cashbox? Yeah, Cashbox Magazine Hot Chart. Oh, like a like it was a magazine top 10 sort of thing, and that's how they pick their uh, what music was good for the day or whatever? Yeah, kind of the people who were getting the most play and huh. stuff. That's, that's kind of interesting. So it's kind of like it's whatever's trending now, but it just takes a little while longer because some asshole's got to write it into a magazine. Makes what? sense. Well, and this was also the first of many tunes... That was written by Willie Dixon, wrote specifically for Howlin' Wolf. Yeah. And so, dude, check out this song. Evil. Yeah, I, I'm glad you said it because I was like, I'm, I'm trying not to steal your get it. Dude, check out this song, but these people have to check this song out. The dudes out there need to check the song out. Yeah, you guys actually got to check the song out. The song's truly evil in the good way. <laughs> yeah. Evil. Evil. In 1956, Howlin' Wolf would record his biggest hit song. It would peak at number 11 on both the Cashbox Hot Chart and Billboard's R&B Chart. This song, Smokestack Lightning. Which is another song that we jammed to when we were starting tonight. And it's oh, like, yeah. It was super good. In fact, the song was so good. After d- finishing my research, I looked the song up and learned how to play it. Yeah. It's, it, well, the fucking guitar part is like... You listen to the guitar part, and you're like, oh, I can think of, like, 50,000 million songs that sound like that. Yeah, if, I think this riff has been stolen a lot. A lot. But over the next five years, he would really end up recording a ton of hits. Like the song, I Asked for Water, and in parentheses, She Gave Me Gasoline. Oh, Hold on, I I, lo- I listen to a version of that song by somebody else all the time, and I, I, I didn't know it was a cover. <laughs> it's a great song, though, yeah, it's right? It's fucking so good. Who's Been Talking, Sitting on Top of the World, Spoonful, Wang Dang Doodle. Oh. Backdoor Man. Yep. Going Down Slow, I Ain't Superstitious, Little Red Rooster. These are all songs that are iconic, and yeah. if, if you have know nothing about Helen Wolf, you're going to listen to all these songs, and you will know at least maybe two of them for no reason, weird reason. Here's the thing. Every single one of these songs that I just mentioned has been covered by somebody. Yep. Yeah, I would not be surprised. Well, and so I did mention that he was signed to Chess Records, so in 1959, he actually released his first full length with them, Moaning in the Moonlight, a pretty solid album, but... He followed that up in January 1962 by what some people refer to as the Rocking Chair album, mainly because this album has a rocking chair with a guitar resting against it. Uh, on the cover? On the cover, yeah, yeah. But there's no actual like album title. I think it's just a self-titled Helen Wolf album. Yeah. It's... But people call it the Rocking Chair album. <laughs> but here's the thing. This album is fucking amazing, dude. I listened to this. It is It is a solid album. I've, I listened to this album during my research. And a lot of the songs I talked just talked about are on it, like Wang Dang Doodle, Spoonful, Backdoor Man, and Red Rooster, all on it. Yeah, so maybe do check out the whole album. I don't know. Check out the whole 
the rocking chair album. Just look up Howlin' Wolf rocking chair album. You'll find it. In fact, Grail Marcus of Rolling Stone magazine called it the finest of all Chicago blues albums. Oh, damn. And this brings me to my next dude. Check out this song. And this is a packed one. Smokestack lightning. Oh, because you got to listen to that riff. That riff is catchy. Listen, as yeah. fuck. Let's do it twice. I asked for water. She gave me gasoline. I, I, I still didn't realize he did a version of this, but I'm going to go listen to it right after the podcast. Who's been talking? Oh. Spoonful mm. and Backdoor Man. Yep. And we'll talk about the famous band that covered that later, so don't mention it, Pat. Of course not. <laughs> I definitely wasn't really getting ready to mention that in a moment. And so on March 14th, 1964, Howl Wolf married lily hanley jones number two number two number two who was from alabama she was a property owner and a smart money manager and they settled in south chicago she would remain with him until his death oh and there we go so only two this time Only two that's pretty sweet and so in the later 60s howlin wolf would still record some more hit songs like tail dragger Built for Comfort, 300 Pounds of Heavenly Joy, Hidden Charms, Love Me Darling, Killing Floor. And so let's follow that up with the next dude. Check out the song. Built for Comfort, 300 Pounds of Heavenly Built Joy. Built for Comfort. Built for Comfort. Built for Comfort. Both of which is about his weight. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Both Built for Comfort and three, 300 Pounds of Heavenly Joy. The song's about his weight. Uh, yeah, about him being a big man. And yep. The, the positive outcomes for it. <laughs> and also the song Killing Floor. That song's fucking awesome. Not as much into his later stuff. They're kind. Of, they're not as like heavy. They're a little bit more traditional bluesy, but he still gets a uniqueness in it, so they're all worth a listen. Yeah, it's, it's something really strange. Like, people who are extremely sper- experimental, it seems like later in their career, they all migrate to a more traditional yeah. even if it's not their original style they they migrate to like some traditional yeah style. a much more contemporary style yeah. it, it, it's it is very strange like I, I assume everybody like wants to keep up so they always feel like the easiest way is to yeah to, to go with well, what's cool or i think sometimes it's just to promote a new album so they can keep touring and making money off their live stuff too like yeah, but i mean he didn't he didn't like throw it in for these songs at all. It's just, they're just different. I mean, yeah. And even in a blues sense, they're still different. Yeah, they, you know? they I mean, are they're unique. still good. They, yeah, they're all unique, really good tracks. And none of his late, like even his late career stuff, is still super solid. It's not like uh, some artists where they really fall off in the late game. But yeah, and it's. I think the biggest thing is it's just not our style really because he did go a little softer, but the songs are like definitely like a unique take on blues too. Yeah, I I think just compared to his early stuff, it doesn't stand up, especially for my taste. I like my songs with some punch. <laughs> yeah, me and Pat agree on that one. We like our songs with punch. Hawaiian punch. Hawaiian punch. And a swirly straw. <laughs> <laughs> the Power Rangers cup. <laughs> so anyway, let's get back on track. In September 1964... He traveled to Europe as part of the 1964 American Folk Blues Festival. 64, such a good year for music. So good. He would tour with such blues artists as Sonny Boy Williamson, Lightning Hopkins, Willie Dixon, you know, who wrote several songs for him. Those are some good names, too. And Sleepy John Etz. Okay, I don't know that guy. Me neither, but I included him. We're going to throw him on a list somewhere. Uh, computer process. Boop, 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 boop. I, I didn't do it this time because I knew you were going to do it <laughs> last time. And here's the thing. Smokestack Lightning was a huge hit in Great Britain. And so Howlin' Wolf would actually be the headliner of the whole tour. Really? Yeah. Now that's a fucking honor. With all those names, it ended up being the headliner of the tour. Yeah, how crazy is that? Like, with Lightning Hopkins? Yeah. Yeah, if you're a headliner for Lightning Hopkins, you fucking made it. It doesn't matter what the hell else happens. That's a badass signature right there. Yep. Put that shit on my gravestone, you know what I mean? (laughs) Well, and part of the reason why he was so big, especially in Britain, is a lot of rock and roll bands ended up covering a lot of his songs, as we mentioned earlier. For a good reason, too. His songs are coverable. Yeah. So, like, Little Red Rooster was covered by Sam Cooke in 1963 and by the Rolling Stones in 1964. 
Smokestack Lightning was covered by both the Yardbirds and the Animals. Yep, and those are some big names. Yeah, and actually the Animals version is pretty awesome. It is pretty great. The Animals have a good a good thing about stealing other people's songs and making them even better. Yeah, they're really good at stealing other people's songs. Yeah, they they're they're fantastic and I, I you know, I I don't even know how like how upset I am about it. You know what I mean? Cuz I'm a big folk music guy, so I think like every especially the songs like, you know, House of the Rising Sun, they belong to everybody and like, you know, everybody should be able to cover them. But at the same time like the animals weren't waiting until they weren't popular anymore. The animals were like, hey, I really like that song you did last year. I'm going to do it, too. Yep. And the Doors, they would end up covering Backdoor Man off their first album. And a lot of people think I'm not a Doors fan. I love the Doors, and I love this song. I did not know it was a Howling Wolf cover for fucking years. Yeah, because it's not well advertised at all. No. And they also do, like, a way different version, so you don't even think they're related. Yeah, no. At exactly. least not at first till you really start listening to the lyrics. Cuz yeah, the lyrics are close enough to where you can actually make it make up the difference, but the songs are <laughs> two worlds apart. Led Zeppelin would end up covering his song How Many More Years, changing the title and lyrics to How Many More Times on their debut album. Oh. Jimi Hendrix would record a blistering fast version of Killing Floor at BBC Saturday Club radio session in 1967 and would even open with that song at the Monterey Pop Festival that same year. Hell yeah. And so that, that right there just shows how much influence Helen Wolf had, like in such an instantaneous, like, put my foot down really quick in the end of my life and all of a sudden everybody's like, I want to do that song. Yeah, I mean, considering he got famous off of a Bob Dylan cover, I mean, yep. you know, he covers people he likes. People he respects. Yeah, exactly. And it, it works vice versa in that way. I feel that. Cream would end up covering the song Sitting on Top of the World on their double album Wheels of Fire. And Bob Dylan would do that in 1992 on the album Good As I've Been to You. And many other performers would do it too. But Did you say 1992 for Bob 1992 Dylan? 1992 for Bob Dylan. I didn't even know that fucking song existed. Yeah, I didn't listen to it because it's 1992 and I'm scared of that era of Bob Dylan. <laughs> yeah, it's so... Uh, I, okay, we're not even talking about it. Moving forward, Helen Wolf. But this song was actually an old blues standard, and even though they covered Helen Wolf's version, the original recording was done by a band called Mississippi Sheiks, which is a great fucking name. Yeah, that's a cool-ass name. Stevie Ray Vaughan would cover three Helen Wolf songs, Tell Me, You'll Be Mine, and Love Me Darling on a studio album in step. And he would also play one of Wolf's songs, Shake For Me, on the live album in the beginning. And just basically perform numerous amounts of his songs live all the time. Yeah, Stevie Ray Vaughan was a huge Helen Wolf fan. And, you know, Stevie Ray Vaughan stands on his own merits. I don't feel like he ever really copied Helen Wolf's style. Because Stevie Ray Vaughan was always very stuck on his thing you know I, you know yeah he, he very well stuck to his you know and he's one of the greatest guitar players he stuck ever. to his roots like yeah. hardcore you know what, whatever you want to say about him like i feel like steve ray vaughn's almost controversial on whether you you like him or not you know what i mean because he is a fantastic guitar player but he's easy to hate too yeah exactly there's a lot of things that you can really pick apart so but I, don't hate don't hate stevie ray vaughn Fucking listen to his songs. Yeah, He's I mean, an excellent shredder. Yeah, honestly, like, you know, musicians in general, that shit's art. There's no reason to hate on it. If you don't like it, ignore it. You know, don't you know to be a dick. And actually, contrary to popular belief, Howlin' Wolf did not hate that people covered his songs. Hell no. Would you? I wouldn't. In a 1967 interview, he said, and I quote, Well, I'll tell you, there's nothing wrong with that. I want all of them to make my records. Because I get money out of it, see? Yep. It doesn't matter no different who sang your song. They sang because of the way they feel. Don't never take and try to change a musician when he does something. Let him play the chords the way he feel. Yep. And pretty much how Wolf says it right there. Fucking just let people play music. Fucking leave them alone. We're actually lucky enough to where even in an era of pretty high, you know, focus and censorship music actually has taken a backseat in the modern era as far as censorship goes i mean i'm sure there's still like 
levels of existence within things like that but yeah i I don't feel like it was like as focused like in the 70s and 80s even they they focused a lot more on like music and censoring it well i mean if you think about it there's nothing shocking left because because of everything that's been done i mean at this point you know you just gotta be unique in some sense yeah and in 1965 Helm Wolf would end up appearing on the ABC TV show Shindig, and he played with the Rolling Stones, who actually had a number one hit in England, Red Rooster. Oh, shit. So their number one song was a cover of his song. Yep. So they must have been just, like, worshiping the ground he walked on at that point. Yeah, I mean, fuck it. If anyone anyone you want to really focus on, like, covering, Howlin' Wolf is a, a good inspiration for that. And with all these artists covering his songs, you know, he became more popular than ever. He'd play at the Newport Folk Festival, the Berkeley Folk Festival, the Ann Arbor's Blues Festival. And in this period, he would release the albums Real Folk Blues in 1966, More Real Folk Blues in 67. And, you know, just he'd just play everywhere. Now, around this time, his health would start failing. In 1969, he'd have a heart attack. High blood pressure, kidney problems, but he would continue to record and tour. In May 1970, he went to London, England and recorded the London Helen Wolf sessions with such British artists as, ooh, that's a lot of S's there. <laughs> <laughs> He's over there sweating. I got to get through this line. <laughs> Eric Clapton, Mick Jagger, Bill Wyman, Charlie Watts, Steve Winwood, Ringo Starr, and Ian Stewart. What? That is a fucking crazy list. Yeah. And it became the only Howlin' Wolf to appear on the Billboard 200, spending 15 weeks on the chart and peaking at number 19. Uh, Only 19? Only 19, but I really think it's because of all the artists I said, though, too. Yeah, it would make sense. In early 1972, he'd cut the live album... Live and cooking at Alice's Revisited. In August 1972, he received an honorary doctorate from Chicago's Columbia College. And this is something I never mentioned up to this point. He was functionally illiterate up until his 40s. (laughs) Really? Yeah. That's fucking awesome. That's how awesome his music is. His music's so good, he received a doctorate. Without being able to read? or he 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 could read by this point. But that's fucking awesome. Yeah. In August 1973, he would record his final studio album, The Backdoor Wolf. In 1975, he was nominated for two Grammy Awards, Best Traditional or Ethnic Album for the album Backdoor Wolf and London Revisited. And his final live performance was in November 1975 at the Chicago Amphitheater, sharing the bill with B.B. King, Albert King, O.V. Wright, and Luther Allison. Wow. Wolf performed as he always did, even crawling across the stage during the song Crawling Snake. The crowd gave him a five-minute standing ovation, and when he got off stage, a team of paramedics were called to revive him. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's so awesome and sad at the same time. Like, I want to be like, oh, that's really sad, but also that's really badass, He almost checked out right there just playing as hard as he could. Oh, that's, I mean, as a musician, I envy that. He was 65 by this point, too. He's crawling across the stage singing. Like, can you imagine a 65-year-old doing that nowadays? And he's not, like, we spoke about this. He's not a little dude. He's he's a no. tall and wide guy. Yeah, he's a big boy. That's, oh my God, that is amazing and sad and amazing at the same time. Seriously, such props to Helen Wolf just for that. Like, we got fucking am- an ambulance waiting for you to be done. You're just giving such a badass performance. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, he's so old, he shouldn't be doing this. Someone call an ambulance. On January 7th, 1976, he was diagnosed with a brain tumor, and he underwent surgery from this, and he would never recover. He would be removed from life support and would die on January 10th, 1976, at the age of 65. He'd be buried at Oak Ridge Cemetery in Chicago. 
No, that's really sad. It always is when an artist like this dies, though, too. Especially with, like, mental degeneration involved. It's it's like a loss of a resource, you know what I mean? Like, having a great mind and having them die is sad of, in and of itself. But watching a great mind deteriorate in any way is like like watching a fine piece of art be destroyed, you know what I mean? Yeah, but, I mean... It didn't really deteriorate because he was diagnosed with it on the seventh and died by the tenth. Yeah, well, so yeah. I mean, it was like an, an an emergency surgery and it failed. Oh, okay. So I guess with that time that time scale, it doesn't matter at all, and that is just yeah, equally sad, literally but, three days. Yeah, so that's that's but, actually really. But sad. I mean, still though, I mean, they say listen to your elders for a reason, and you know, it'd have been nice to be able to listen to him play live. Yeah, exactly. Even at 95 or whatever, you know. He clearly had more to show to us, you know what I mean? If 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 his last show is him crawling across the ground screaming his lyrics, like, yeah, he still probably had a, a few more shows in him if his mortal coil would have kept up. Now, before we get to our last thoughts, I got a few more things to say about him. Oh, please, lay it on me. So he was elected to the Blues Hall of Fame in 1980 and was inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1991. And in 1994, he was even put on a postage stamp. <laughs> postage stamp? That's a cool... Uh, you don't really get that. You don't hear about that honor very often. I mean, that was... It, it, before, like, today's day and age, that was a big honor to yeah. be put on a postage stamp. Yeah, nowadays, like, you just get ducks and stuff on it. And here's the other thing that I never mentioned about him. Anybody who worked for Howlin' Wolf was paid a fair salary. He'd withhold unemployment insurance for them and even Social Security. He gave them health benefits. You know, he treated them great. Shit, he treated them better than most companies now do nowadays. And he wasn't a man who lived an extravagant life. You know, he and his second wife, Lily, along with her two daughters, lived a modest, you know, but still comfortable life in Southside Chicago. He never wore a ton of jewelry, didn't drive a flashy car, in fact, preferred a Pontiac station wagon over Cadillacs that were driven by his peers. <laughs> and he hunted and fished and owned farmland in Arkansas. Well, that's pretty, that makes sense because he was a farmer up until nearly his 40s. Yeah, and he even volunteered with the local fire department there too what a fucking badass dude that guy yeah. is, a, is a legendary badass like just a great dude all around yeah i mean we we always talk about like you musical achievements and inspirational achievements and soul achievements we don't really get to talk about that very often where like somebody's not only truly inspirational like on a on a musical level or like on a on an intellectual level like this motherfucker was out there preaching what he you know he, he was doing just good stuff you know what I mean? He clearly wanted to just give more to the world. And Well, let's do final thoughts. We are definitely on final thoughts at this point. Uh, yeah. I mean, and let's, I let's start with you because you're going already. Uh, no, 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 no. Go ahead. By hell means, good sir. Well, so you know what? He didn't kill any girlfriends. Didn't kill any policemen. Fuck yeah. Didn't slash no one with a razor or shoot anybody with a gun. Exactly. And I always liked his songs. I don't know why I did, never got more into it. His songs are fucking awesome. Like, they're the gravelly, hard-nosed, like, just out there style that I like. And I just can't believe that I didn't like them when I was young. I didn't like him when I was younger. Yeah, it, it, it really shocks me because that's how amazing his songs are. Like, I should be lift, listing off all the albums that I purchased by him right now. Like, in fact, the Rocking Chair album... I'm going to look for that on vinyl because that album kicks so much ass. Like, I don't even want to just buy it on a fucking digital copy. I want to buy the physical album, you know, throw it on on a Sunday morning, cook some breakfast, sit down, listen to it while I'm eating. That's what I want to do with this album. That's how awesome it is. Just absorb the energy from this album because this guy was energy in and of itself. This guy knew how to put on a show. I mean, he farmed his whole life. Like, up until he was 39, he didn't even dedicate his life to playing the blues. That's like a midlife crisis for most people. He farmed and played the blues. Like, he was just an average man who ended up writing some of the most kick-ass songs and then paid it back to the people who helped him out. Yeah, and he didn't get famous till he was older than we are now, so... 
I know, dude. That's fucking crazy. Yeah, it's it's very strange to think about being someone in their early 30s and be like, holy shit, like Howlin' Wolf, you know, 10 years in my timeline from now is, you know, being cover, color, or covered by the Beatles or whatever. Yeah, that's like a 40-year-old guy now writing a pop song and all the girls going, ah! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he wrote about the dump or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not going to try and make fun of modern music, I guess. Not more than we already have. <laughs> we really do try not to talk about modern music. We try not to talk too much shit about anything, but... Howlin' Wolf, my final thought on you, you've made my regular playlist, and you're going to make my physical albums list. <sighs> okay, let's do this. So, we're going to wrap about final thoughts. Trying not to step on Ian's toes and trying not to be redundant with things I've said before. There's only really a few things I can focus down on here. So I'm going to focus down on it. If you really want to understand the difference between Hal and Wolf and any of the musicians who maybe followed him. I won't say all of them because there are very high amount of them who are extremely creative and did amazing things. But if you want to know the real difference between... Howlin' Wolf and other musicians on average, it's a level of self-inspiration. The things that Howlin' Wolf wanted to present to people and in his albums and the things that he wanted his albums to really show and the, the, the themes in his songs, all of those things were not predetermined. Those, all of those things were not like pre-set up. They're not, they're not already established musical techniques he's doing weird growls and slamming on the ground and howling like a wolf during his songs and we talked about him getting inspiration from yodeling and things like that so obviously he didn't just create it out of nothing but he takes an inspiration and moved it a lot well not just that but he took his inspiration and inspired other people to extraordinary levels like you were mentioning today, like one song we played, you're like, oh, I hear Tom Waits in this, which I know you take huge inspiration from yourself. I mean, he inspired other people who inspired other people who inspired other people. Yeah, no, exactly. And it's it's so amazing to find these stepping stones because it all goes back because everybody's inspired by somebody musically. That's the thing. Like if you play music, you're you're not none of your music doesn't come from out of nowhere. It doesn't matter how you learn it. Even if you mechanically learn music theory without understanding anything about pop music, you will still have to be inspired by a style. There is no way you can't. Well, even the Beatles said all music's borrowed from someone else. Yeah, no. So I, I and it is truly is like the way it is. It's music. It becomes a culture that you not only absorb from somebody you share with the future generations. And I feel like Howlin' Wolf, if we were to make a complex scientific chart of inspiration is going to be such a huge swath like i could i honestly feel like you could make a like a flow chart of inspiration like who inspired who what songs and what themes within music could inspire people and i feel like helen wolf would take up such a huge chunk in this chart that i couldn't even couldn't even begin to thank him enough for bringing the things that I personally really love about music to music. Yeah, I mean, let's let's name some of the artists I mentioned. The Doors, yeah. Rolling Stones, Stevie Ray Vaughan, Cream. Yeah. All of those bands went on to influence in numerous amounts of other people to even just pick up the guitar. Well, and let's let's talk about some influence just for people of modern day too. If you don't like if or if having old doesn't happen, then people like Screaming Jay Hawkins don't happen. And that means yelling, growling, anger, vo hard vocalization. Not doesn't... just that, but, you know, Screaming Jay Hawkins stage show. Yeah. Because he had a stage show. He was like the original Alice Cooper, which we will cover. Yeah. But, like, you we'll, know, we'll he was known. Screaming Jay, not Alice Cooper, right? Are we covering Alice Cooper? Is that what you're demanding? Screaming Jay. Oh, okay, that's what I thought. That's Okay, just making sure. Yeah, no, we're going to be covering Screaming Jay. He's a, he's fucking amazing. Yeah, and it's like Screaming Jay, then Alice Cooper, then Kiss. You know, th these were these guys were known for their stage show. If it wasn't for yeah, White Zombie, you, yeah, you wouldn't have White Zombie if you didn't have Howlin' Wolf. Yeah, and that's exactly. Like, 
you know, he was a blues musician when you're supposed to be, you know, very upright and proper. And he crawled along the stage at 65, you know, dying. almost dying. <laughs> yeah. You want to you talk about metal? There's nothing more metal than uh, an ambulance is waiting after you're done. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's, that's the most metal thing I've ever heard. Yeah, exactly. So... Uh, my last thoughts, uh, though uh, maybe scattered more than usual, really come down to that. I feel like your influence spreads farther than is really, really quantifiable. And I feel like so much great portions of music that we really love are so rooted in this influence that if, if Helen Wolf didn't happen... We all might be missing 20, 30 massive genres of music. Or just, you know, proper stage shows. Because at the end of the day, yeah, what it, it's a pretty limited number of people who do those orchestrated like, uh, stage shows. Well, right. But at the end of the day, as a musician, you're putting on a performance. And the people expect that. Whether it's, you know sad you know staring at your shoes type music or whatever you're still putting on a performance whatever you're playing and he embodied that till the day he died yeah and so you know let's end my last thoughts with this if you're a musician and you don't know what to do on stage do something weird do whatever your spirit truly calls to you for you to do through the music as long as it's not you know violent or naked uh do your thing you know what i mean i i've People have there might be a few people who disagree with you on the naked part. Okay, you can get naked as long as everybody, oh, as long as they're old enough, signs a waiver. I don't fucking know. I'm not trying to throw <laughs> that out there. Get naked responsibly, or else keep your pants on. Uh, you, think, you think the Red Hot Chili Peppers made people sign a waiver when they played in socks? I'm just thinking about that fucking New Year's <laughs> show that we went to in uh, Ballard. You and I. Uh, it must have been ten years ago in some little house in Ballard and the guy got naked on stage down in the basement or like I said on stage in the in quotations. Oh, that, that little punk show. Yeah. Where oh, the dude God. took all his clothes off. It was playing it with his guitar and his dangle dangling all over the place. And everyone's like, no, we're not really we're interested in this. And then everyone, <laughs> like the whole party just wandered away from this naked dude. <laughs> like in the basement. It, was, it was one of the most, yeah, either way, keep your pants on guys. But, Extreme shows uh, within reason, I, I, I say do it. If you want to play something that's extremely different from your style, guess what? People of some style will accept you because the reality is Howlin' Wolf wasn't really all that blues in most of his songs. He Some of his songs, though, having blues roots, the way he vocalized and you know had a different energy in all these different forms really proved to be something different than blues, yet he fit into the genre because it was so good. So experiment, have fun, writhe on the ground, keep your pants on, have fun. We love you. Thank you for tuning in.